Thank you very much, Colin. That's uh, really got us, uh, got us going. I'd like to invite our panelists to come forward, and uh, Colin, you might uh, come up as well, if you would. <clears throat> so I'll say brief, some brief words of introduction. Uh, you have extended information in your program, so I will be brief, and to take them in alphabetical order. Stephen Collins is a, Collins is a political columnist with the Irish Times, and he was formerly political editor of the paper. Kent Kenny um, is a professor of management at Queen's University of Belfast. Uh, Gerard Lothuig uh, is professor emeritus of history and a former vice president of NUI Galway. And Fiona Ross is chair of uh, CIE and uh, previously chair of the National Library of Ireland and CEO. Welcome to all of you. I think in light of uh, Colin's uh, provocative remarks, I wonder, Stephen, if you might uh, kick us off, given your expertise in matters of politics, and, I mean, you could either perhaps reflect on the two general elections that have occurred um, in the interim and the consequences of them, or perhaps a more direct uh, reply to Colin's thoughts. Well, I will reflect on the general elections in a minute, but I, I liked uh, Colin's, particularly his summing up his, uh, the current uh, words, because somebody, my brother-in-law last week challenged me to say, backstop. He said he'd read the papers. What does it mean? Can anybody explain to me what the Irish government or the British government or anybody means by the backstop? And it's... It's the thing that's bandied about, and everybody assumes uh, people know, know what it means. Um, I'll just initially go, it's, it's take on the, the, the political side. Colin was focusing on the culture. Fianna Fáil were the dominant, not just the dominant political party, but the dominant, they dominated the political culture in Ireland for 80 years, um, from the time 1932 until the crash. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the the political impact of the, of the crash at the, at the end of that, because that, part, that party had been so, so uh, used to power, and you rightly summed up the way it, it, it managed to harness the appeal of both, there were a party that were in government for so long, but they managed to portray themselves and even think of themselves as the party that was somehow opposed to the establishment. So they managed to contain uh, a radical uh, element as well as a very establishment uh, way of, of governing. But when the crisis <clears throat> began to manifest itself, uh, I think Fianna Fáil had a choice. Um, people like Brian Lenehan certainly knew uh, from, from early on that, that he was in trouble. I was just thinking back when he became Minister for Finance, he mentioned uh, a few weeks afterwards at some function or other uh, that it, he, it was his misfortune to be Minister for Finance at such a, a difficult time. Immediately, there was a front page headline the following day, Minister's Gaff. Uh, and I think that is one of the problems. The, media, the minister was actually telling the truth, and instead of analysing why was he saying why was he saying that, it was uh, he, he committed a gaffe, so he had to try and row back on it. But actually, it didn't matter rowing back on it because the figures, uh, the, the budget was just spinning out of control, uh, and it was spinning out of control because we've heard from the experts earlier on the tax revenues collapsed. But Fianna Fáil had the choice, and some of them I sp spoke to me about it as, as they began to wrestle with it. In the beginning, they had confidence, yeah, they could do it. Fianna Fáil was the party of power. We know how to deal with these issues. But as it got worse and worse, uh, some discussed, maybe we should just trigger an election. Maybe it is time to get out of power. Uh, and one Fianna Fáil TD said to me, he said, look, in Irish political history, Fianna Fáil have messed up a few times, but we always managed to get out and Fianna Gael took over and they clean up the mess. So I think it's time we did this again. If we get out of power now, we might lose 20 seats. Fianna Gael and probably Labour will be in power for the next couple of years and it's going to be horrendous and then they'll be buried for the next generation and we'll be back. 
to be fair to Brian Lenehan and, I, and, and to Brian Cowan, I think as well, they, it, that wasn't in their minds. They tried to deal with the mess. They knew Brian Lenehan had the advantage. He'd come in new. He wasn't a minister. He wasn't tainted with all the policies that led to the crash. Uh, Brian Cowan was uh, by being Minister for Finance. But I think, to be fair to them, they made an honest effort to deal with the issue, to try and pull the country back from the brink of absolute disaster. Uh, and I think when we look at Greece, we know what a disaster can really be. Uh, so they didn't do that, and they paid a huge electoral price for it in 2011. Uh, but the interesting thing about that election was there wasn't a huge shift in Irish politics to some new party. In other, in other countries, in Greece, there was a, Syriza came out of nowhere to become, their, their, to become a new political party that took power. Uh, in Ireland, who did people vote for? They voted for, in the main, Fine Gael and Labour, the old parties of, of opposition generally, but the old established parties. Uh, they then took over, uh, and it was in, in 2011, and they suffered, I think Labour particularly suffered. Fine Gael didn't suffer as much. I think a good chunk of the Fine Gael electorate kind of knew what they were doing. Labour had uh, been more, more vociferous in opposing the, uh, the, the budgets and the cuts that were brought in by Fianna Fáil. They took an appalling hammering because people expected something different. So it was 2016, five years after, uh, the, uh, the first election, that I think there was more of a, more of a manifestation of, of, of political fragmentation. Uh, in 2011, I think there were 19 independents, independents including middle of the road, typical independents and the left-wing groupings. Uh, in 2016, there were 29 of them. So, and the, and the vote for, combined vote for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael dropped below 50%. So does that mean a lot of commentary at the time were on the road to fragmentation. Since then, over the last two years, it, it, this has, has stabilised. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have both gained in the opinion polls. And going back to Colin's reference to Bail and Blaw, uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, uh, apart from the fact that Fianna Gael and in, in government continued the policies of the bailout, uh, the Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael agreed to cooperate in a most unusual way in the current government. So the government, the Fianna Gael government, is there at, at the behest of Fianna Fáil. So the two parties, and certainly the so-called civil war politics has long been buried. And I think the, that is one thing the financial crisis certainly put pay to. But I don't think we've probably seen the ultimate result. And I'll stop with that. Uh, Fianna Fáil have lost, uh, Fianna Fáil collapsed from 80 seats down to 20. They recovered a bit at the last election. They've lost a chunk of their electorate to Sinn Féin, I think. Uh, mainly the, the working class Fianna Fáil support, the more radical Fianna Fáil support is now with Sinn Féin. Um, at, on the middle class, and the middle class supporters were targeted more by Fine Gael. Uh, so, so how that will pan out, only time will tell. Right? So I, but I think, in other words, the financial crisis had a huge impact on Irish politics, but so far it hasn't destabilised it to the extent that it has in some other countries. Yeah. I want to grow if you might, might comment on what you think of the, the predicament more broadly of, of liberal democratic yes. states. Well, I, I was just pondering the, the, the issue of the backstop and the uh, definition of it. I, I think... To some, for many people, the, the backstop has replaced soft landing yeah. as the kind of <laughs> yeah. com comfort blanket that is craved by those who do not believe that dark clouds portend a downpour. Mm. So I, I, there's an element of that in it. Uh, I think one of the things that struck me is that our predicament generally, uh, whether we see it as typical in the, the world in which we inhabit, um, if we were to see those philosophers, political scientists, social theorists, and historians and economists indeed, who have taken the temper of the times uh, over the recent years in the open societies, and I'm speaking only of open societies rather than of closed societies. 
I think it is interesting to see the way in which they have characterized <coughs> the predicament and the circumstances that, now, that we're now living through. And without exception, the key analyses have zoned in on anxieties. Um, just very, very quickly, David Runciman, How Democracy Ends. James Bridle, New Dark Age Technology and the End of the Future. Levitsky and Ziblatt, How Democracies Die. Jeff Mann, in a recent study of Keynesianism and its legacy. In the long run, we are all dead. Um, and of course, we've heard earlier today reference to um, Yuval Harari's writings, uh, in particular Homo Deus, uh, and his, if you like, analysis of the implications of the advances that are made in biochemistry and in artificial intelligence, in neurology as well, and the AI, the algorithmically driven technology, and it's the way in which it is transforming our world. Now, the obvious ways we are getting to grips with, and some of them are mentioned by Colin, the hyperconnectivity, the instantaneousness, and so on. But there are the, the deeper issues of the extent to which consciousness and intelligence are being decoupled, <coughs> to the point at which what, what it means to be human is essentially an issue now for, for discussion and for consideration. Now, obviously, that level of discussion, whether it is Runciman or Harari or whatever it is, is not going to be, it will not confront Colin in the pub that he's going to tonight. Uh, not in those terms. But the deeper anxieties that are, uh, that are here are everywhere. And it's precisely how they have manifested themselves in many open societies, the fears, the anxieties. And the common thread for them all is a shared sense of a lack of meaningful agency that is being experienced by people. Uh, a, a, a sinking feeling that there is nothing that they can do, political in other terms, to shape the world, the circumstances and the forces of the world in which they are lodged. Uh, and that lack of me meaningful agency obviously will, have, will take particular directions in particular societies, but it is a common thread. And if we were to look, for example, at uh, the language in which it has manifested itself most aggressively and most, if you like, um, ang angrily, um, it is reactionary in a very simple sense, the, 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 the very vocabulary it uses. Make America great again. Make Italy great again. Uh, bring back control. Let us have control of our own this or our control of our own that. There is a sense in which it is, it is to, to, to bring back uh, influence and meaningful agency which has been lost and the feeling that this, this loss has been both grievous and somehow or other is not amenable to anything that's available around us in politics. It, the financial crisis, financial crisis is a central episode in it, but these, these, the sources of these anxieties go back before it, but it's a central episode because it revealed very clearly uh, the fact that the algorithmically uh, driven technology of financial transactions, the speed, the, uh, the power, uh, the potency of it meant that even the larger states were unable immediately to find uh, uh, mechanisms for bringing it under control or coming to terms with it. Yeah. Or to take the biggest one of all, of course, um, uh, climate change. Though people do, of course, acknowledge discussions at a superficial level on television, whatever it may be, but whether the idea that how is this and this goes back to Francis Rowan's point earlier on today, the feeling that this globalized thing, it's too big for me to understand it, too abstract, too large, too complex.
but then I retreat into a, a, a kind of a bunker of fear. And if you look at those fears and how they have manifested themselves, the anti-immigrant thing in societies which have been heavily influenced by immigration, the idea of you restore a, 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 a base community, national community on cultural, ethnic grounds, whatever, you restore that community to some state of authenticity and cohesion where it's been, if you like, absolutely <coughs> broken asunder, you get the Trump's America, you get the, 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 the wilder versions of Brexit, you get Hungary, you get Poland, you get the Czech Republic, you get, Hung you get uh, Turkey, uh, and this is just straying to the edge of open societies. And you do get some familiar symptoms, the, the strong leader, the hyper-nationalism, the notion of the community bonding together, the anti-outsider, and as I say, there is, a, there is an anti-globalization element to it. The globalization itself has become too large and elites and experts and multinational companies and those who are remote. There is no immediacy of agency available to people. And I think if you look at that as the wider context within which uh, the Irish experience has been lived, as it were, over the last decade, and a decade is a short time frame within which to take a historical perspective, even an interim one, I think what emerges here, and I'll be brief on this, we can discuss it later, mm. what I think, if you look at it in the case of, of the Irish experience, where we have fitted into this, Irish society has not been convulsed by this experience. Seismic though the crash was, uh, deep and persistent as the human immiseration of it has been in many aspects of Irish life, it was not convulsed. We did not experience the emergence of an ultra-aggressive uh, nationalist uh, blowback. We didn't even experience a significant, if you like, anti-EU or anti-globalization movement. There have been critiquing, but it's been a critiquing that hasn't led. We have not had a protracted period of insurrectionary politics. Yes, we've had specific uh, cases that, that uh, Colin men mentioned. Um, and I rather suspect that the housing crisis has the germ of a much wider uh, social uh, eruption, as it were, than the water thing had. But we haven't had sustained insurrectionary politics. We haven't had a lurch to the right. And even though the, 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 the electoral support for the two main parties, and Stephen is absolutely right in this, even though the electoral support dropped, if you actually categorize the ideological spectrum of all of these independents and fragments and so on, you still find a strong centrist presence within Irish society. So that the point I suppose I would have to say is that we have had mobilization. It's not as if we are a dormant people, but the two major mobilizations we've had, the two referenda, uh, the one on same-sex marriage and the one on the repeal of the eighth. Significantly, I think, those two have involved mobilization where, in the Irish circumstances, the liberalization agenda of the 1970s is working its way through to the end. It's the, the issues there were choice, autonomy, our bodies ourselves, the question of reproductive rights. In other words, it's the, it's the, it's the finishing out of the agenda of individual choice and agency in that instance. And the only ideological current to which it was aligned is the only one that is still <coughs> wholesome in Ireland, and that's feminism. Nationalism is not after the experience of the North. Um, religion is not after the long disclosures. Feminism in its current wave was aligned certainly with the repeal of the Eighth in a way that produced individual choice and agency of a kind that allowed mobilization and feminism. But in saying, you know, to date we have managed to go through a very difficult decade without major convulsion, 
I'm less optimistic looking at the general framework as to what may be in store, right. uh, and we'll talk about that another time. Yeah, okay? that's a very, I think that's a very interesting and distinctive feature, that there hasn't been this, this convulsion, as you, as you put it. And one of the things which is distinctive about the American political scene is, is precisely that the reactionary appears radical at the same time. And you can combine those two energies, you've got something very p powerful politically. I wonder, Fiona, if I could ask you a little bit about your, your take on these things, partly in relation to a couple of issues. One is, I suppose, the broad question of whether we've learned from our mistakes, because that's one of the questions I think that Guru is about. How do you educate the public? How do you create a more informed relationship to economic questions as well as political ones? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, obviously, I think what we're hinting at here is that we, maybe we did waste the crisis, uh, and, and maybe we are on the, the doorstep of a new crisis. Uh, and in terms of uh, you know other other activities in which I can go into in a moment. First of all, on the backstop, currently trending, I think, is the RTE Junior television program okay. explanation <coughs> of Brexit. Which, if you haven't seen it, Paul Cunningham is the TV reporter. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely fantastic. It's geared at about seven and eight year olds, and uh, it is now trending, I think, pretty virally about. And it's an excellent, very simple explanation of the backstop features in it, with a nice map of Ireland and, and all that good stuff. So go take a look at that. Um, a couple of things I just wanted. To to, to, to reference in terms of myself, I was a senior banker, and I know it's probably something I shouldn't have admitted. It's buried in my in my bio, uh, and I'm a refugee from the from the crisis, as it were. I went into the library and then public service after that. But at the time of the crisis, I was head of investor relations for Bank of Ireland, so I probably met that hedge fund manager you spoke about, Colin, who came over to Dublin to look at the the crane count and talk to the mm. builders. Um, and I would have travelled, I was with Bank of Ireland at the time, so that's the bank I was with. I would have travelled all over the world meeting institutional shareholders on behalf of the Irish banking system. And um, for what it's worth, and probably not very much at this particular point in time, 10 years later, often we would come back to base and we would reflect on, the, on, on how hot and heated the market had become and the level of credit. But at any point in time, if the senior management <coughs> of the Bank of Ireland had decided to use some of the, to call a halt or to slow down lending or to make a change in our policies. The shareholders, who were not obviously, they were international shareholders, would have uh, rounded on that management team and that team would have departed within months to be replaced, by the way, with another management team that would have done what the shareholders expected them to do, which was grow up the bottom line. So it's just a, a vignette of being mm. in the room and listening to it. And it, it, was, it was, in some respects, the power wasn't there anyway for, for the Irish banks. And we would have always followed in. And Bank of Ireland was always the third. You're talking about the Cinderella. We were the Cinderella bank, because Anglo was definitely the hot act in town. And if Anglo had been into the investor first, and then AIB was in after them, and then Bank of Ireland was in after that, you were always the, the, sort of the third on the list in terms of, of, of their uh, approach. But I, w I was struck, struck by something that, um, that Colin said, and I think it's worth exploring. Uh, I sit on a lot of boards, and we talked about governance, and we talked about groupthink, and we talked about people sitting around the table. Uh, I'm not as um, an, uh, positive or optimistic that we have changed an awful lot. So certainly we have better gender diversity, there's no question about that. Uh, and we have better state boards and better, Francis and I were talking about that earlier on. So I do think that you, overall you're seeing both on public sector boards and on private boards, more so on public sector boards, a bigger cadre of people coming in. But I sit on the boards and there is still a lot of groupthink and I'm guilty of that groupthink myself as well. So that point about consensus. So I think we haven't quite learned uh, to get there. Uh, one of the things I've always challenged now is that, it, and I wouldn't say we've won the gender war in the boardroom, um, and that's for others to debate, is a youth diversity in boardrooms. And I think one of the things that we've talked about a little bit, and I know I wasn't here earlier on this morning, is the challenges of financial literacy. And I think we are still financially 
not very literate. And I think some of the discussions we're hearing on Brexit around trade and around protectionism and around how things work and what, have, what you have to buy and how you have to hedge, etc. We're seeing, I think, another level of financial literacy coming through that scares me because I sit on as many boards in the UK as I do in Ireland. So I'm seeing it from their point of view as I sit around the table. The other thing about being on a, a, a director, at a, at whether you're on a PLC or whether it's a private company or whether it's a public board, you're there once a month. I mean, my board packs now run, and anyone who sits on boards, maybe five or 600 pages. And you go in, and so you're really just dipping in. So I think there's a little bit of an, a sort of a misunderstanding of the role of directors. It's not a perfect system. It's, it's, it's what we have and it's what we've got to work with. But it's still a very poor system in terms of you might have very well-intentioned people who will read all 500 pages or 752 pages of a board pack, but we're really just tipping the surface of what's actually going on. And we really are relying on management mm -hmm. teams. So I think as we look to, the, to govern systems better, I'm encouraging folks to look at the executive teams as well. Don't lose, out, lose sight of the importance that good executive and management teams has. They have much more activity, they're doing much more work on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the other thing I would just reference as well in terms of if we ran foul of financial literacy at the time of the crisis and, and people didn't understand <coughs> you say what a bond was or where you would burn it or what, how, how the markets worked, I think we're still running foul or risk the running foul of, of what I would call technical literacy. And I'm talking about, and we do, it has been referenced already by some of the speakers, uh, the power of, 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 of social media, the power of the big tech companies, uh, the power of an artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, and it, that is something that is still very poorly misunderstood poorly understood by, by a lot of people, and, and not by younger people, but certainly by a lot of people. And it's even less understood at senior levels within boardrooms. And that's another big challenge as well, is that if you think that around the table people are understanding uh, cloud computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, machine learning, we're only beginning to understand those huge trends and themes that are going to overwhelm so much of our corporate life that then run so much of the lives that we live as well. Mm. So I think we're on the cusp of something very challenging in terms of, 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 of a, possibly a new crisis in that respect. But I've got other comments, but I'll, yeah. I'll pass it to... I want to actually uh, to bring Kate in because um, I'm, some of your work is related to the role of whistleblowers. And this, <laughs> the comments Fiona's made add an interesting complication to this because we're trying to manage complexity here. Now, one of our... Call it a backstop, if you like, of a different kind, is whether organizations can allow for dissenting voices within them. So I just wondered if you might comment on, on what you see I as know, the potential. I know, exactly. There. And I mean, this was on my mind all through the talk. I was thinking, gosh, I'm going to have to say something very different to what's been said already. And I feel a little bit shy about this. You know, I have to say now, I'm a sociologist, so I'm not an economist. Um, what I did was I was in my, my cave of fear, as, uh, as Garrow described, after the crisis, thinking, oh my goodness, I know some people in banks. Uh, they're ordinary, they're nice, they have families, they like to go home on a Friday, as we all will, and, and enjoy the weekend. They're not sitting around trying to destroy the economy of my country or any others. No, not at all. So where were the people among those who were saying, hang on a second, I can't go along with the orthodoxy, my personal ethics, and, and there, were, there were. There were plenty of people. But what I'm sensing in the discussion today, and this is absolutely reflected in the way we're just talking about whistleblowing and financial services, is the bad bankers were in the past, and now we have whistleblowing law, and I don't know if you know, but Ireland, since 2014, has one of the most powerful whistleblowing protection laws in the world. Hooray, hooray! But actually, but actually, not if you're in financial services. So it was a real chilling effect for whistleblowing in financial services today, and I, I can talk about that a little bit more. Um, we absolutely still do. I was thinking on the train on the way up, what will I say that's kind of happy, you know, because we really, we really still are seeing in the research coming out now about financial sector workers in Ireland, in England, 
we're seeing the same sorts of levels of problematic behaviour being witnessed, right? So I was saying, what will I say that's good? And I was, well, at least it's as bad in other countries. Okay, all right. Well, you know, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So that's good. So um, what are we talking about? Well, Transparency International in Dublin, they do these surveys and they were serving in 2017 all the sectors. Now, in their top 10 of kind of corrupt sectors, now what, what you're saying there is people who are, who are answering their survey, survey, ordinary people saying, I work in health, I work in banking, and this is the level of problematic uh, practices, um, you know, uh, misuse of, uh, of uh, ignoring rules and regulations and illegal activity. And banking has never featured in the top three until this year. So it's kind of elevated itself into one of the most problematic sectors that they're seeing for the first time. Okay, fine. So what we have is surveys um, coming out of financial sector that show that up as much as 25% as, as of people in financial sector today, this year, feel that they need to ignore the rules in order to stay successful in their particular role. It's less for women. It's less for women, actually, 9%, you know, so there we go. But, um, but what we're seeing is we're absolutely needing whistleblowers who are going to come out and speak about this. Because what are they? They're, they're a cheap and cheerful. Uh, how much does the banking inquiry cost? Quite a bit. How much does it cost to listen to a whistleblower who's telling you actually our liquidity is in trouble? Actually, we need to, um, to watch the fact that we're flouting the rules. You know, that, that's pretty much a, a lot cheaper than your banking inquiry. It's a lot cheaper than an embarrassing court case, whereas Jez Staley found out at Barclays in the UK when he went mm. after a whistleblower. That was pretty embarrassing. You know, it was actually quite cheap for him because with the one million uh, sanction, it was actually only about a third of his salary for that year. But so what we're seeing is we need these people, we need to support them, and, uh, and we're not doing so right now. And I can talk a lot about why not, you know, because uh, can I talk yes, a little bit about why? Yeah. Why not? Why not? Well, okay, say you're sitting in there at the moment, we'll call her, you know, um, uh, Francis the banking senior manager, because whistleblowers who talk about systemic corruption are usually senior. They're the kind of people that have the breadth of information about what's going on so they know when they can call it when something's corrupt. So something is problematic, it's 2018, one decides to make a protected disclosure under the all singing and dancing new Irish law, which has been a fantastic triumph for all the people that worked to bring it in. So what would you do? I mean, you know, you make your protected disclosure to um, internally. 90% of whistleblowers, and this is across the world, go internally first. This myth of the person who's going to go charging off to the media, or off to the regulator first, it's just not the case. People majority try to, tend to fix it first. And so now we have internal whistleblowing systems for various reasons. Many have been, I've, I've been doing studies into these in the NHS, into major banks, into international engineering corporations. What makes whistleblowing systems work well? We have some idea from the research, but most companies do not implement the best practices. 50% don't even train the manager. So you can imagine you're the manager with the red phone, and actually I did meet somebody senior in a bank in Ireland who was manning, or womaning, the whistleblowing hotline. The red phone was there. I said, how many times has it rang in the last year? And she got embarrassed and she said, well, it's actually been twice, but they were both wrong numbers. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and it was because the chilling effect was still in place for various reasons. The systems are slowly being implemented, but they're not being used internally in organizations. So somebody goes through the process internally, perhaps they're not listened to, they're still bothered, they know they can make the protected disclosure, so they go onto the central bank website, they start to Google whistleblowing financial services central bank. It's a chilly kind of place because 
the protected disclosure, you can go on yourself, go and you know, get the form, go on the website. Uh, what it tells you is that it will take your disclosure and take your information. You may not hear back, you may hear back, and there's very good legal reasons for that. <laughs> Central Bank, if they're investigating a whistleblowing complaint, often cannot tell the whistleblower. But what they can do, and I can talk about best practice in other countries, they have other ways of creating and generating trust so that person feels, okay, I don't know what's happening, my information, but I do have trust in this entity. But at the moment, the landscape for the whistleblower in Ireland's financial sector is all they can see is the fact that they may not be responded to. There's a report about the protected disclosures that have been made since 2014. And I mean, this is interesting to me because I'm an academic, I have to write research reports. So I really wish I was writing this report because it's two lines long. It says, this year we've received 113 2018, 113 protected disclosures. We have accepted them, investigated them, full stop. This is it. So the whistleblower is thinking, right, I, I have no idea what has happened to those. Have they been sanctioned? Has there been repercussions? Is anything done? So it's a, a chilly sort of place. So they go on Google and look at financial sector protected disclosures. All they have, and, and we all know we're in a, a world where we look for stories in order to fill the gaping chasm of you know, the trust and the anxiety that's talked about because we don't know what's going to happen. And philosophically, in any time of uncertainty, we fill that void with narrative, with stories. Okay, what has happened to somebody else in my situation? Who will take my disclosure? And in those cases, all one is greeted with are negative stories about financial sector whistleblowers that have been penalised, that have been retaliated against, people like Eugene Macrolane, people like Jonathan Sugarman. Okay, you might say they're old stories, but they're the only stories out there. They're the only stories. Or you might be confronted with the Irish Independent articles from literally last year, where an independent journalist phoned up the central bank's hotline and sent a few emails saying, protect disclosure, sure there was nobody at the end of the phone. It went through to voicemail, but I think voicemail hadn't been set up yet. And so the person is ringing this hotline and this was, so this is what the potential whistleblower gets when they decide to blow the whistle in financial services. It's what Tom Devine calls a chilling effect. Tom Devine is probably the lawyer who's worked with financial services whistleblowers in the world the longest. We work with him as part of a research team that I um, work with. He's based in Washington, DC. In America, they've been doing this for years. He's been representing whistleblowers for 30 years, and he talks about the chill effect. You see, nobody has to come forward. You have to bring them forward. And any kind of chill is going to bring them back into the cave because why would they risk it? Mm. Why would they risk retaliation? Why would they risk it otherwise? Yeah. So, well, yeah. I think a common theme here, actually, interestingly enough, is our questions of agency, which seem to be bedeviling the kind of contemporary moment. How do we organize ourselves collectively? There's an agency through social media, which people feel, and it may be a superficial one, uh, so we can aggregate and have, a, have political effect through those means, even if it, it leads to a certain kind of fragmentation of another kind. Agency, which is conferred by whistleblowing systems, but also that sense that we're still confronting something larger than ourselves, which is immutable. And it's partly, I mean, Fiona, you were talking about uh, questions of literacy and so on. It's also the, the sheer challenges of, of assimilating information, where we can have a sympathetic <coughs> response to that. I just wondered, Colin, about your, your, your take on that, that kind of agency question. I don't know whether you, that's part of your, your, your dramatic take on, on how the, the electorate side of it or, or the, the, the public side uh, responds to, to crises of the kinds that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's, it's a powerful point that Geroid um, makes. Um, 
the first thing that comes to mind is is uh, is a very sort of personal, selfish one. Mm. Is that um, the business of writing plays about this stuff gives me great agency. It's it's and so my you know the the fact that I was able to like I think everybody found the crisis very alienating, disempowering, partly because of the complexity, uh, and and so yeah, so I know what it's like to turn, go in and try and kind of get a grip on it, and, 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 and then the business of um, turning them into plays, you know, the play, I mean, okay, it's on TV at the moment, but is designed to play live for an audience like this. The, that process is supposed, to, is, is, is about empowering, essentially. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's what Ram is originally. It's the original medium, yeah. the original media. And these, these are, are they intended to be cathartic, or uh, <laughs> are they are they educative? Are they both? Uh... Yeah. Like, so cathartic is a is a is an interesting word. It's the original Greek word, and the conventional uh, translation uh, of uh, of catharsis is that it, it involves it's it's a purging of emotions in the audience um, through their feelings of pity and terror as they as they mm. as they watch the the, the character. There's a very con conservative slant on that, which is essentially that you know drama or entertainment is an opium uh, for the people. There's also a radical uh, slant on that, which is that this catharsis is provocative. Um, so, 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 yeah. Yeah. That, that, no, uh, that's an interesting. <laughs> that is the dilemma, mm -hmm. in effect. Which direction do we point in? There's a, there's one way of, of, of responding to the description of, of, of Irish political reactions, which is to say that this is a conservative reaction, that the, that the centre hasn't disappeared. Another, which is actually that, that we can approve of this because the alternatives, in case of Greece and elsewhere, have been pretty unattractive. Uh, yeah, yeah. Stephen. Yeah. Well, the alternatives. That that, uh, that is the question uh, because if you look. We didn't have the convulsion, as Garrod said, and maybe we're a fairly society, we're a fairly small society. But actually, if you look, um, Colin was talking about the trust level, the trust levels dropped uh, and the trust levels are very low. But I was looking recently at something I follow every year, and it's very, it gets very little mention in the media, and most people don't want to hear about this. It's the UN Human Development Index, which measures uh, the quality of life in all of the countries of the United Nations, not, not just in terms of income, it's in terms of, of their health, education, security, women's rights. And we ask Irish people, where do we come in the world? And most of them get highly <coughs> wrong. At the time of the crisis, we were in the top 10. We dropped slightly out of it. The most recent uh, one published two weeks ago has us number four in the world. Uh, that we are the four, and this is not some, somebody boosting it. Leo Varadkar actually got a bit of, a bit of slagging on Twitter, which I'm not, I don't follow Twitter. I, I, I really have an aversion to social media. I'm of an age, I can just afford to ignore it. But, um, Leo Radker tweeted this, and he was being attacked on Twitter by people who say, you're, you're making this up, it's all lies. It's on the UN site, and the UN Human Development Index is, is recognised as one of uh, the best uh, ways of measuring where societies are at. So I think that's one of the reasons we haven't been convulsed, because despite the crash, we didn't do that badly as a society. Mm -hmm. Some people suffered very, in different categories. As we're talking about a society as a whole, there are individual stories, of all sorts of individual stories of of tragedy, uh, but what John, John Fitzgerald has pointed out, the social welfare system remained intact. Some, there, were, there, were, there, were, there were changes at the margins, but there were no huge deep cuts as they were suffered in Greece uh, and in Portugal and in Spain. Uh, there was a huge increase in tax, so people who, people who lost their jobs obviously suffered most because they lost their jobs, but there was a huge increase on tax. We had a very low tax economy before the crash. We are now the middle income and higher income people are paying a considerable amount in tax, which is a good thing because that, that is transferred and it makes it keeps the system fairly equal. But to come back to the, the question, um, 
what do people know about their own societies? Most people would not believe you if you, if you, if you told them, just, say, just read, read, read the UN index and see, see. But I think it does explain to me why we haven't had the, the really political convulsions that we've seen in other places, even more recently in places like Italy. Interesting. Do you not, do you not consider the water charge protest a convulsion? Surely it was. If, if it was a convulsion. In the mind, it's in, 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 the, in the great scheme of things, no. It, it wasn't, nobody died. You know, there was no... Uh, uh, revolution. It was, it, it was a protest movement which I think, it, it, interestingly, people paid the property tax. The property tax went through yes. when we had, we, had, we, had, we had Jim O'Leary who was here, did a very interesting study. Uh, the water charges thing fell at the end and it fell, um, it was a, a very badly mishandled uh, by the government uh, and it was a successful, successful protest movement, but it wasn't really a convulsion. I wouldn't think so. Yeah. I mean, it was certainly a significant, uh, significant indication of where the electorate was. Yeah. And I think, for my own yeah. lights, I think it's partly a reflection of the fact that people had felt that enough was enough, yeah. so that they had suffered other yeah. kinds of retrenchments yeah. and so on. It's like, all right, the stuff that falls on my head every day, I got to pay for that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Kind of intu intuitive thing. Yeah. Well, I just. Um, Historically, it was it, one of the explanations that has come up time and time again for the way in which the, the core of Irish society has remained largely conservative, leaving out the institutional framework of a conservative church, a property-owning, petty property-owning society since the time of the land war. But one of the recurring themes is that we essentially had the safety valve of emigration, that at key points, uh, over a long period of time, decade on decade, from the 1840s up to 1950s, and indeed again with a spike in the 1980s, that at times of crisis we essentially uh, we siphoned off or we decanted what would potentially have been a hugely disruptive element within the society. Now, the interesting thing about our migration history over the last number of decades, uh, of course, we've still we still have had different. It, it, it's, it's had a different rhythm. But we've had, in fact, a, an inflow. And what's interesting here is it hasn't led. Mm. Uh, now, the size matters, of course, but it's not only the size. It hasn't led uh, to a considerable anti-immigrant feeling. That is not to say that we are models of tolerance or that there is not background noise that is disagreeable uh, that one can hear casually. Uh, and obviously, this is usually visited upon those who are disproportionately visible it's not the size. Mm. There is going to be very little uh, comment, one would imagine, on the 120,000 polls because A, they are white, they are largely looking for work in an economy which has room for them, and thirdly, they have a, an access point to at least one part of the culture being the highly fervent Catholics. But there will be, there's a, there's a disproportionate visibility mm. among minorities, whether they are Muslims or are from Africa or whatever. Mm. There hasn't been uh, any reaction. It's, some of it has to do with the size of it, some of it has to do with the manner in which it has been almost uh, cauterized through, through different mechanisms. But it's something that we would at least, uh, I think, need a better discussion about. And I probably, the only other thing I would say regarding um, whether or not whistleblowers, the general climate and so on. Political leadership in Ireland has to do two things. It does one very well, and the last decade has shown it as well. It is extraordinarily nimble-footed and adaptive to exogenous shocks. Uh, the, the general political culture uh, in, in, in finding mechanisms for, for patching up things, for remedying, for getting through, uh, and so on, uh, has shown itself highly adaptive. What it doesn't do is provide 
coherent strategic statements of deep choices. And that is why I'm slightly worried about the, 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 the issue of particularly the two ones that I'll identify, uh, Brexit, for example, and uh, climate change. Because uh, the kind of discussions that are going on, the breathlessly hourly minute-by-minute minute account of the toings and froings of the re-smogs and the general pantomime that has to do with who's, who's, who's kind of outfoxing whom, um, is, is missing something that's happening in front of our very eyes. Um, if I could just make one observation. Cast your mind back to 2016, less than two and a half years ago. Think of the state of Anglo-Irish relations at all levels, at the level of popular culture, and at the more symbolic levels of interstate, and indeed in terms of understandings of two, two member states within the European Union whose interests overlapped and who had a strong rapport. Think of the extravagant cordiality of Anglo-Irish relations in 2016 on symbolic events having to do with presidential and royal visits and so on and so forth. And just think of the damage that has already been done by Brexit in prospect, and it hasn't come at all in souring that entire, if, entire context within which everything takes place. Uh, the tone of it, the fractiousness of it, the recriminatory nature of it already, the uh, evo evocation of the, the worst kind of shorthand of historical precedent. Now, this is all two and a half years on from 2016. Who would have imagined it? So my, my, I have a, a deep feeling that the Brexit uh, thing is going to pose challenges which will go well beyond how customs checks take place. It has to do with a very large climate, and more particularly for us, once the exit takes place. We will find our position in the EU post-Britain a much more difficult position to, to, to be in. For all sorts of reasons, it is probably because I think, and one has to be careful, <coughs> I think we have probably passed peak consensus on the European integration project that began in the 1950s. And it's not just because of Poland and Hungary, but because more generally if one looks at the difficulties that are being experienced in the major hegemon of the last two generations in Germany, I think we've probably passed peak consensus. It will be more fragmented, more difficult, more multilateral and bilateral, and we'll be smaller and more an orphan yeah. after Britain's exit. And I think we would need to contemplate that. And I also think, for what I, now that I'm saying it, I'll finish, I also think that the Trump phenomenon, for all its grotesque theatricality, may also reflect something that will survive the man and the style. That is to say, I think the aggressive pursuit of national interest uh, state interest by the United States uh, post-Trump may well be an aggressive pursuit of state interest rather than taking the global view. And in the longer term, looking back, we may be looking back not just at the Bretton Woods and the architecture of the, of the end of the war being essentially come to a, at the end of its shelf life or needing refurbishment, but can anybody in this room say mm. what the authority currently, what the authority currently, model or otherwise, is of the United Nations, the major, the major institution established for, for in world terms after the Second World War. So we are looking, I think, at a situation where we are going to be small and 
in the, in the post-Brexit situation, we're going to have a, more difficult, a much more difficult time, and not just for corporation tax and for other things. <laughs> no, that's a, a very pressing question for small countries, I think, in the scenario that you've sketched out. There are a great many more issues that we could de debate at the moment. I think it might be an opportunity to help put things out and to sort of see whether people had concise questions. Con concision is always welcome in this context. So invite contributions uh, from the audience. I see a hand there. And, and yeah, this gentleman in the green jacket. Uh, yeah, he's just over on the left side. side. If you can use the microphones, because uh, that's helpful. Yep. Uh, thank you. My name is Michael, Michael McEvely. Uh, I just want to uh, question, um, um, let me see, that's um, Garrod, sorry, Garrod, <laughs> Garrod, in regard to, um, he, he sort of raised many, many interesting points. But um, you're talking about Irish, Irish society not being, or not being convulsed by the recent crash. Um, perhaps Garage, and I'm sure you, you spoke this with, with, with real honesty, but from my point of view, I think, I don't know what percentage it would be, Garrod, but deep down, I think the Irish are a little, by, a little bit like the, the, the iceberg. Most of it is underwater. There's a deep sense of loss. But they certainly, some of the individuals I know, they don't go around protesting in front of their town halls or outside the door or anything like that. In other words, they're suffering in silence. I think that's one thing. Now, in regards to, I have another issue as well, and it's, it's regard the equality, marriage equality, and it's this. Maybe it's because of my background, and I'll just fill you in slightly with this. I come from a background... Concision, concision is, is mm. the, the soul Pardon? of wit. Concision mm. is the soul oh, of oh, wit. Oh, decisions. Okay, okay, okay. The point is, I have a, um, an issue with that in regard to uh, the marriage equality in the sense that uh, my background is three bishops in, in the family and four or five uh, Jesuits. Perhaps, it's a, perhaps it's, it's a family thing. I have a complex. Maybe I, maybe I should go to a psychiatrist and walk it out like. <laughs> but uh, that is my pioneer garage, mainly the, 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 uh, the, the convulsion of Irish society and yeah. a little bit like the iceberg. Many thank, thanks. Thank you. Girl. Yeah, yeah.